Hey, it's Kirsten. Do you feel like you're spending way too much money on supplements? When I started out on my health journey, I was also shocked about how expensive high quality supplements were, especially as I was upping how many I was taking. That's why when I became a practitioner back in 2018, I started offering my clients a way to save up to 25% off many of their supplements through a company called Wellevate, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E. Through Wellevate, you can order many of the supplements that you're already taking, like Pure Encapsulations, Gaia Herbs, Enzymetica, and others at discounts of up to 25% off retail. And shipping is free for orders over $49 within the United States. The only way to buy supplements through Wellevate is through a practitioner, and I will earn a small commission at no additional cost to you while you're saving money. So if you want to start saving upwards of 25% off your supplement bill, go to the resources page on my website at carefullyhealing.com forward slash resources and go to the Wellevate section. You don't have to be a client, just set up your account and start saving. I'm Kirsten Ramstrom, a certified holistic health coach, and welcome to the Quest for Healing podcast. Whether you're just starting out on your health journey or you're farther down your path, I've created this podcast to inspire and inform your health journey through first, some extraordinary healing stories from real people, second, an exploration of some intriguing healing modalities, and third, through conversations with enterprising people who are making a difference in the health of our world. Welcome to episode 70. I know it may not feel like it where you live, but spring is right around the corner. And that always makes me think of gardening because my dad always had a big garden in our yard. And this was the time of year that he would start planting and growing seedlings for the wonderful bounty that we would enjoy over the summer. And when I reflect back, I am so thankful for all the food and all of the elevated biotics that I'm sure I got just from walking down to the garden and picking those fresh tomatoes or peas and eating them straight off the plant. I don't know about you, but now that I eat so many more fruits and vegetables and leafy greens, I wish I'd gotten a lot more involved in our garden because I'd love to grow more of my own food now. And you may be feeling the same way. So this week, I invited Kevin Espiritu from Epic Gardening to come onto the podcast. Kevin and I are going to talk about the basics of gardening outside, things to think about when planning for your particular environment, and deciding what might grow best in your area. We also cover what you'll want to consider in terms of getting your soil balanced, as well as watering. Plus, we have a discussion of organic versus non-organic and GMOs that taught me a couple of eye-opening things in the process. Lastly, we'll go through some of the easier foods that you can start off growing. I've timed the release of this episode for early March because for many of you, this is the time of year to start planning for what you may want to grow this year. It's always one of the easiest times of year to order seeds from high quality seed companies online, and I will include some of the suggested companies in the show notes. So while this week's episode is essentially your starter course, next week I have Kevin back for a bonus episode when we'll talk about a few crops that are a little more advanced but are near and dear to all of our hearts, like growing asparagus, artichokes, and of course, celery. Plus, Kevin reveals his favorite foods to grow for himself. So don't forget to follow Quest for Healing so you don't miss this bonus episode. 
If you're thinking that you're not quite ready to grow foods outside yet and would like to start on a little smaller scale, please check out episode 48 with Maria Fiella from Bloom and Grow Radio. And the episode is called Growing Your Own Healing Foods at Home, where we talk about windowsill gardening and growing herbs indoors. Now, before we go to the episode, I want to apologize in advance for the quality of my sound. After we taped this, I discovered that my podcasting mic had decided to stop working. The good news is that my computer mic was okay as a backup, but the better news is that Kevin's audio was unaffected and as clear as a bell. And that is, of course, the most important thing. And as you can probably tell now, I've gotten a new mic, so the problem's been solved. But with no further ado, let's dive right into the episode. Well, Kevin, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Garrison. I'm, I'm excited about it. I can tell you my whole audience is excited too, because we all want to learn more about gardening and you're just the perfect person to do this. I love <laughs> following your Epic Gardening Instagram page. It's so much fun. And so why don't we just dive right into this? Let's go. Let's do it. Okay. So what are some of the first things that you should think about if you want to start trying to grow some of your own plants outside? I would say the, the first thing maybe two of the first things to think about would be the space that you have and where it's located. So, you know, if you're in a condo or an apartment or a suburban home, you have to know how much space you can even grow in uh, and, and how the light interacts with that space. So, you know, if you're in the Northern hemisphere, at least South facing is going to be your best angle. And so if you don't have that, then that kind of gates what you're able to grow. Uh, besides that, you're going to have to know where you are in the world, quite literally, you know, what, what climate are you in and how does that climate impact you know, when you can start seeds or when you can put your plants out or any things like that that have to do with their care. And is there an easy shortcut where people can figure out what the best plants are for where they live? Yeah. So there's this thing called hardiness zones, which I wouldn't say it's perfect. Uh, what it basically maps is the average lowest temperature in an area, and then it plugs that to a number so for me, I'm zone 10B, which is quite high on the hardiness zone list because I'm in San Diego. What that means, I believe, is that the lowest temperature we get is 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I got a little lower than that this year, but it's an average. And so what that gives you is it gives you your first and last frost dates. So, you know, the time in the year when the ground is workable, that last frost of the year. And then, of course, when the season ends, the first frost of the year, uh, the first frost of the season. And so that gives you your growing season. So if you know your growing zone, you have a rough idea on your growing season. And the best way to do that is just type in your zip code and type in hardiness zone on Google and it'll give it to you. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I know that here in South Florida, I am actually in zone 10B as well. And you're mm -hmm. in San Diego, also in 10B. Yeah. yeah, the difference between us though is quite stark. So that's why hardiness zones aren't that good. All it says is that our minimum temperatures are the same, you know, but your soil is different. You have way more humidity. You have a way higher temperature peak than, than we do. And you probably have more rain too. So your climate's way different than mine. So you can't just say 10B, you know, and we're the same, which is where a lot of growers will get caught up. They're going, I thought I was the same zone as you. Yeah, that's one thing. It's it. Remember that only there's just one thing, uh, which is why it's an okay, but not great measure of, of quick rule of thumb. Okay. And what would be another resource that people could use to try to figure out within that, what are the best things that might succeed in their area? 
So the next step you could do is once you know your zone, uh, again, I always like to refer people to Google. So you could just type in, you know, zone 10 B planting guide, and you'll get a bunch of websites that'll come up with some things you can plant in that area. Uh, and they'll usually overlay it with the calendar year. So you can say like, oh, you know, you know, I could start my tomatoes in April and someone else can start them in June, right? And then, as you mentioned, the soil here is likely very different than the soil there. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that people need to take into consideration about the soil? The main thing to think about is the textural makeup of it. Um, so there's sand, silt, and clay particles. Uh, and in that order, from largest to smallest size of particles. So sand is the largest, and silt and clay is tiny little particles. And so, you know, the perfect mix, what everyone wants, but almost no one has, is something like a sandy loam or a silty loam, which is a pretty much a one-third, one-third, one-third mix of all three of those. You know, but if I had to guess, I would say, Kirsten, you probably have sand. And I, over here in San Diego, I have clay primarily as my, my primary sort of element. And so you, you, it's not that you can't grow in either. It's just that those both have a weakness that the lack of what they need is not providing, right? Um, so, you know, for me with clay, it's holding on to a lot of water. It has a lot of nutrients in it natively, but it's holding on to a lot of water and it can get very muddy and, and sort of sloppy basically, and it can drown the roots out over where you're at. Probably if it's sandy, you have really good drainage, but you have not a lot of nutrient in the soil and the nutrients don't hold well. And so you have to know the textural sort of quality of the soil first, and then you can figure out, okay, you know, what do I need to do to kind of troubleshoot this? And would going to a local nursery or garden center help as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you go into a local nursery or garden center, you can bring a bag of your soil um, and just say, hey, what's up with this soil? And they'll, I mean, they know that they're, they're, they're all gardeners there typically. And they'll say, oh yeah, in our area, we have blank soil. Uh, therefore you need to do this to it. Right. So you might be add compost or, you know, lighten it up with something or whatever the case may be. So a lot of times you just walk in and ask, typically with with many quality nurseries, you can have them order a soil test for you. So you can actually get your soil tested. Uh, And that that typically they partner up with a lab. Uh, They'll send a bag of your soil out and you'll get it back and you'll get actually a printout of, you know, the nutrients in it, the quality of it, any sort of amendments they recommend. So you can actually go that far, which I usually recommend if you're trying to grow your own food. Oh, that's cool. Okay. I didn't know they did that. That's Mm -hmm. fascinating. So one of the things that's really important for us is growing foods organically. Do you have any tips for somebody who's just trying to dive into this of the best way to approach that from the start? Yeah. So I don't know if this answer will will be super satisfying, but in my view, at least, uh, I think about it all from sort of a biology point of view. You know, organic versus non-organic is a false dichotomy. So just because something's organic doesn't necessarily mean it was grown healthier or better for you. Um, just because something's grown conventional doesn't necessarily mean that it was it is now worse, right? So I think it's a weird misunderstanding that I think actually both sides of that, you know, the companies on either side kind of want to perpetuate in, in my view, because they both have an enemy, right? You know, but when we think of the word organic, when you think of it in that context, you think, oh, you know, it's been certified organic and these things haven't happened and this has happened and X, Y, and Z. But when you think about the word organic from like a biology point of view, it's organic, you know, is something 
organic matter or is it not? Um, and so it's different different definitions, but also, you know, in, in conventional agriculture and in organic agriculture, you can actually use pesticides in both. It's just that the organic ones have to be uh, naturally derived. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's, that's healthy and good to spray on your plants, you know? So, uh, you know, arsenic is naturally derived and penicillin is synthesized these days, right? So which one would you rather put in your body? Me, probably neither, but if I had to choose, I'd probably put the penicillin in, you know? So that's something that just to keep in mind, I would say for, for growers, I mean, everything I grow in my garden would not be able to be certified organic because of the regulation, but I don't use any spraying or any fungicides or pesticides. I don't use any sprays whatsoever. And so which would you rather eat? That's an interesting question. I would say the more you can work with the plant and your natural sort of environment that you have, the less you can sort of do to it generally. And the more you work with like the whole ecosystem and that gets to give a bigger space and we can talk about that, the better off you'll be generally from like a health perspective. Because, you know, if you think about like growing anything, if you give it, if you protected its whole life from X, Y, or Z, it naturally is less resilient and less strong. And that would be the same, whether you're spraying an organic pesticide or not on, on your plant. The, the solution for many pests is to have an ecosystem, in which there are predators for those pests and that the plant is so healthy that actually they prefer to eat something else. So plants have natural defenses within them, right? Uh, and, and that's the healthier the plant is, the more that defense exists within the plant, whatever that compound is for that particular plant. So uh, anyways, long-winded answer, but uh, we can certainly get into some of those. It's perfect for my audience because we feel exactly the same way about our bodies. Mm -hmm. The healthier we get our bodies, the more resilient we are to anything else that's going on outside of us. So I think that was a perfect explanation. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would generally, I would agree. I mean, am I ever going to, am I going to take zero medicine ever in my life? I guess that would be ideal, um, <laughs> you know, but if, if I get hit with something that even a resilient body can't handle, then I will probably medicate in some way, but I would prefer not to, you know? Absolutely. I know that one of the things that we're concerned about when it comes to organic foods is genetically modified seeds. And obviously mm. if you're planting your own food, you can control that. The second thing is using pesticides that have a lot of metals in them. You had mentioned arsenic. Copper is another big one that's in a lot of pesticides. Yeah. And that's organic, by the way. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess the focus there is if you're going to choose to use some pesticides, try to find the ones that don't have a lot of metals in them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that it's, it's, you know, co copper, copper fungicide is actually one of the only things that controls against something like powdery mildew relatively well. You could also just accept the powdery mildew, you know, um, but that's pretty gnarly disease that goes around almost everywhere. And then, you know, when it comes to the GMO seeds, actually have some sort of relief, relieving information is it's actually not possible for a home grower to purchase them. Um, you can't, it, it doesn't, it's not even possible. Um, if you think about it, you know, I've, I've been to seed tours up and down the California coast with companies that have and have not developed these seeds, right? Organic companies and, and the, the reverse. You, you would need to sign a contract, a purchase agreement, et cetera, because you're, what you're buying is patented plant material. You, you can't buy it. So when we talk about GMOs, I mean, you're looking at, you know, BT corn is a really big one. And what's weird about that, and again, I'm not saying I'm for it. I'm just, you know, I like to explain why things are the way they are is, you know, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, is an organic bacterium that controls against many of the larval forms of pests. 
Uh, and that's what they engineered into that corn is, is genes from that. And so it's like outside of that world, we would actually spray BT on our crops in, in organic. That's a very common organic pesticide um, that as far as I can tell, at least has no toxicity for humans. And then it gets into the corn and, and all of a sudden it's now, you know, bad. I'm not saying it is or it isn't just an interesting little wrinkle there, you know? Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't worry about buying GMO seeds. You, you actually can't as a home grower. So anything you buy, is going to be, you know, a hybrid seed, which is sounds bad, but it's not uh, heirloom seed or just, you know, just a standard organic seed. Perfect. I didn't yeah. know that. I hadn't thought about that in terms of seeds. And now that you say it, I know that a lot of the big seed providers they go to great lengths oh, yeah. to protect. Well, I remember when they were suing everyone because the the seed was propagating, the plant was propagating and going into the fields. It's like, well, they can't control that. And so if they're that protective about that, they're certainly not just letting you buy it anywhere, you know? Absolutely. And when I was a yeah. stock analyst, the guys who covered those companies, I heard about that all the time because it was mm-hmm. such a big deal. That was huge back then. Yeah. And that's how yeah. they protect their business. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's good to know that those of us who are just out there doing our little thing, we don't have to worry about that. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and this may be very specific to what you're growing, but do you have any thoughts on watering or should we save that for later? Oh, we could definitely do it. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of tips on watering. It, it kind of, let's get a scenario though. Like you know, where is someone growing it? Growing like a raised bed or a container or something like that. If, if we're talking that, then Watering a lot is getting your soil right first. So, you know, your watering problem will be exacerbated if your soil's off, right? If it's all sand and you're watering all the time, you could have just fixed the soil. Um, but besides that, something to think about, I guess, is that same with light, same with anything, is we tend to like anthropomorphize what our plants need and we think they they act like us. And so you know, someone will want to water on a schedule. And really the time to water your plant is when the plant needs water, which sounds kind of like a dumb answer. but um, then you just have to train yourself to know when a plant needs it. Uh, and so it, that does depend on the plant, right? Lettuce is a more uh, showy plant. It'll it'll wilt very quickly and you'll say, okay, well, clearly I, I know what it needs. Some plants don't do that. So you have to check the soil. The simplest thing you can do really is just pop your finger down into the soil and see if it's moist about you know three to six inches deep. And if it is, you're probably fine. And if it's not, it's probably time to give it water. A lot of plants tend to want infrequent deep waterings like tomatoes. They'd rather be watered, you know, twice a week very deeply than every day a little bit, right? Then you have plants that have a more shallow root system and they'd rather be watered every day, at least a little bit, uh, especially if it gets hot out. I'm thinking of things like the lettuce. Uh, lettuce is going to wilt like crazy and if it's without water for a, a day or so. So yeah, it does depend on the plant for sure, but it's it's mostly just kind of seeing if the soil has enough water. Okay, so it's just important to be in touch with that and understanding what it needs. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if people wanted to start growing a few basic things, if they wanted to try this out, what mm-hmm. are some of the things that you would recommend that they start off with? So I would say pick from the list I'm about to say, pick the ones that you actually like to eat the most. So that's a, that's a big tip. I used to grow things that are quote unquote easy, uh, but I didn't like to eat them. So it didn't really matter how easy they were, you know, but that being said, I mean, things like most any leafy green is, is pretty simple. The darker the leafy green, generally speaking, the more it wants to grow in the cold. So if you think about kales, spinaches, 
collards, they all would prefer the colder climates. So you could start them, you know, going into fall perhaps, or going out of winter, but things like lettuce and chard, et cetera, those will do fine most of the time. Actually, most leafy greens generally prefer cold, I would say, if they had to choose. Then you get into like root crops. So you could do radishes, turnips, uh, carrots, I would say in roughly in that order, that's how easy they are to grow because radishes and turnip seeds are very hardy and large and easy to germinate and carrot seeds are very tiny and delicate. So those actually also would prefer cold uh, if they, if they could choose, they tend to, their flavor tends to be better and, and they don't have as many problems with what's called bolting. So they, they'll try to go to seed and you, you don't really want that if you're trying to grow it for the root. After that, when you get into like fruiting plants, the things you're growing the fruits of, so peppers, tomatoes, the classic summer crops. Honestly, I wouldn't say any of these are super difficult. It's just that you're growing them for more of their life. Uh, you know, lettuce and chard and, and kale and stuff, they actually grow much longer than they would when we harvest them. Lettuce will will throw a big flower stalk up. You just, we don't grow it to that point, so we don't really care. Uh, but tomatoes, we're growing for its offspring effectively, if you think about it. Um, so that's why they can be a little more challenging. You're growing them for more time. There's more things that can go wrong. But they're not super difficult, I would say. The things that you'll find are the hardest to grow, I would say are just the ones you're trying to grow outside of the conditions they want to grow in. You know, if you're growing something and you're giving it everything it needs, it will just grow. That is what, that's what's designed to do. Cause we don't really grow anything. If you think about it, the plant grows itself. We give it the environment that it would prefer to grow in. So, you know, the only problems you, <laughs> you end up running into with growing plants is you haven't given it the environment it wants to grow in or like a pest or disease can come get it. That's pretty much it though. Okay. That makes sense. And I love the way you put that with the tomatoes, that yes, the goal is that we are waiting for that fruit and mm -hmm. that is sort of the end game. And I had mentioned to you earlier, my father was an avid gardener. So mm. I remember with the lettuce in the backyard going down to pick that, we had to go down and pick stuff from the garden every night because you had to mm -hmm. see what was ready at the right mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And I always loved the tomatoes. He always grew cherry tomatoes for me. That was nice, one of my favorites. Nice. Yeah. And I do remember with tomatoes, the one thing that he had to do was attach them to stakes so that they would mm -hmm. grow high. They weren't something mm -hmm. that just, you know, stick in the ground and it would grow up. Although I think there, the peppers are, do that. Yeah, peppers. I would say you you generally would want to stake both, but peppers need like a tiny little bamboo stake and or none if you really don't want to. And then tomatoes, yeah, you have your determinate tomatoes and your indeterminate. So determinates, you you might be able to get away with not staking um, because their height is determined, hence the name. So that the terminal bud is actually a flower bud. So there's it can't grow anymore. Indeterminate never stops. Um, and maybe that's what your, your father was growing. And so indeterminates can literally grow 10 feet tall if, if you let them. Um, and that's why you would have to stake those up like crazy. But I mean, if you're in a smaller space, someone listening, they do make container sized tomatoes now that, I mean, the whole plant is less than the size of my head and it's little cherry tomatoes. So you wouldn't need to stake that. So it's a, a lot of it comes down to variety and space, you know? And tomatoes are one of those, I guess it's a fruit, right? I think somebody decided to call it a vegetable at one point, but I think it's yeah. technically a fruit, right? It's, te it's technically a berry, but yeah, that would be a fruit. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there's so many varieties of tomatoes that are out there. Mm -hmm. besides just cherry tomatoes and oh, you yeah. know what we think of as regular old red tomatoes mm -hmm. there are so many varieties that have such amazing tastes and the one thing i do remember from when i was little i would go down to the garden with my dad 
and we would pick those cherry tomatoes fresh off the plants. And I will tell you, there is nothing I have ever bought in the store that tastes like that did. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when they have that, that warmth from the sun on them. It's like, when would you replicate that buying it at the store? You're not going to warm it up. So it's that, that, that flavor I think is enhanced that way. Yeah. Absolutely. Are there any other things that you think might be good for somebody just starting out? Yeah. I mean, I think in the springtime or fall time, you could do peas. Pretty simple. Um, you do need to provide them something to climb up. They have these tendrils that attach and they'll climb, but very big seed, very easy to germinate. Doesn't really want too much. Uh, I would say generally just put them where you're going to plant them. Don't start them in a, like a seed tray and then put them there. You can, they just, sometimes they don't take as well if you do that. And then as you get to the summer, thinking of a similar ish crop, you get into beans. So bush beans, for me, if it's a beginner, you, you go with bush beans because you don't have to stake those up, right? Just little, little bushes of beans, very productive, you know, very nice. You can, you can have them dry. You can let them dry and just eat them that way, or you can eat them fresh as, as um, you know, green beans. So you just different varieties to do different things there, but yeah, th- those are also pretty simple. Those ones, actually both of those are legumes. So they improve your soil. They're capturing atmospheric nitrogen and locking it down in the roots Uh, So provided you don't rip the roots out by the time you harvest, you actually have have somewhat improved your soil. And that would be one of those things that at the end of the season, you would leave the plants in the ground after you've harvested all the peas or the beans and rototill it in, right? Yeah, I mean, you can. I I tend to not rototill. Uh, I've rototilled once, and that was because I have such clay soil. I wanted to improve the soil by adding in some organic matter. My plan now is to not rototill again, generally because you're it's kind of like, uh, I'm sure your listeners are all about, you know, gut health and all that, right? So you think about the soil as the gut of the plants. If there's a body, the, the soil is the gut. And so what's going on in the gut? Well, there's fungal connections, bacterial connections. There's, you know, little, what you would call pests, I guess, but they're really just soil bugs that are hanging out and they're decomposers. And they're taking your plant matter and bringing it down into the levels that the bacteria and fungi can eat, which brings it into effectively elemental levels that the plants can eat. So if you rototill uh, every time you pull out your crop, you're, you're actually shredding sort of those associations. And so what you prefer to do really is, is just leave, take your, let's take, you know, you have 12 by 12 beans, right? Just cut the stems at the base of the soil and just leave the rest in. And then if you're done for the season, you can throw some mulch on top and let it be. And all that soil life's going to be working that in over the course of the season. You should be fine. Uh, actually have quite healthy soil the next time you go around or at least healthier. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that comparison. I think that makes all kinds of sense. We do talk about gut health a lot and the beneficial funguses and bacteria that are in our bodies and things like that. And so what you're saying is there's a lot of that that's beneficial in the soil too. And there's yeah. a lot of things that we might consider, quote unquote, bugs or pests that are actually very beneficial for the soil, mm-hmm. things like earthworms. Yeah, yeah. Earth, earthworms are fantastic, of course. You know, there's there's like, you know, the pill bugs or the earwigs, like the, all these things really are pests if there's too much and they're not pests if there's the right amount. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, I had a really big problem with earwigs last year which typically they're a decomposer, like I said, so they're, they're breaking down, you know, decaying plant material, but there were too many. So they were breaking down whatever they could find. Um, and so I had to thin them out slightly. Uh, but as, as a garden develops, 
and naturally a predator will come in and start eating those like you know maybe i'll see more spring birds this season uh and they're coming in and eating those you know little bugs and they're they're cutting the population down but yeah i'm, I'm huge on trying to get as much life in the soil as i can because that's really what's going to do the work absolutely yeah are there any foods that you think a beginner gardener should avoid ones that someone might think is easy but aren't really huh i mean I guess when you get into fruits, it becomes more challenging. You know, if you really are into, you know, juicing fruits or, or whatever the case may be, the easiest one is probably something like strawberries, because uh, you can get it in the same season for one. <laughs> but secondly, you, you typically buy them as starter plants and they kind of just do what they do. But when you get into growing any other fruit, you're, you're getting into either canes, you know, shrubs or, or trees. Uh, and when you get into those, it's just the time horizon is way longer you know, I planted citrus last year. I might get a few this year and then next year should be the good year, right? So I would say don't worry about stuff like that too much. Unless you have the space, I wouldn't really worry about things like watermelons, cantaloupes, pumpkins, squashes, because they're taking up at least four feet by four feet each and they need a lot of resources to grow. And you're probably better off just grabbing those at the store, the farmer's market, things like and I break these rules because I really like these crops, but you know, things like potatoes are so cheap that you can typically just buy those. I really like, um, you know, homegrown fresh potatoes. So I'm, I'm never going to not be growing those. Uh, and then when you get into like garlics, any of the allium crops, like garlics, onions, leeks, the easiest one to grow would just be green onions. And so that I would say very easy and probably recommend. But if, if we're talking about growing your own garlic, growing your own bulbing onions, I'm doing that this year. I did, I've done it before. It's it's just a really long growing season. It's over half a year. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong in a half a year, you know? So it's a lot of effort for maybe getting something that, that gets messed up. So I would avoid those ones. But, you know, if you want to try it, try it. It's it's the kind of the fun of the whole thing. Cool. And one of the things you had alluded to earlier was the ecosystem of having a variety of plants together in a way that essentially protects the ecosystem. So the whole ecosystem is healthier. Can you speak to that a little bit more of how people might think about creating that more wholesome ecosystem? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on this, but what I try to do is I will have a portion of a raised bed or a portion of a section of a garden that I will plant something that I didn't want there, I guess, is, is a way to put it. So, you know, in my onion bed right now, I have some nasturtiums planted around the corners because nasturtiums tend to attract, and it's not always the case, but they tend to attract things like aphids or some of these pests that you might not want. And so I'd rather have them on my nasturtium, which I don't really like the taste of, even though it is edible, than, than my onions. Other ways to think about this would be to say, you know, Let's say you have, you know, a tomato or cucumber crop. Maybe cucumbers are a really good example because they have male and female flowers and pollen actually has to transfer between the two. You can plant flowers in the same bed, like very highly attractive flowers to bees in the same bed as the cucumbers. And then you don't have to worry that your cucumbers are getting pollinated or not. Um, so things like that can really work. So it's kind of knowing like what the plant needs. Sure, you can put flowers in your lettuce bed too, but your lettuce doesn't need to be pollinated. So it's, it's, it'd be mostly for the beauty and nothing wrong with that at all. But there's a real purpose for it if you did, were to do it in like cucumbers, for example. So yes, yeah, it's, it's combining plants like that, that I didn't put a lot of value on when I was first starting growing. And now, you know, I, I don't have a bed that doesn't have that interplay. 
Okay. I remember in our garden in the backyard, you're going to know what this is. I think as soon as I talk about it, we had a big section of the garden dedicated to fresh corn. And I think what my dad planted around them was either pumpkins or squash. Because from what I remember, the vines that sort of came off of those and had the squash or the pumpkin on the end were furry and almost prickly. He was trying to keep some pest away from the corn, I think. Yeah. So that's two thirds of a Native American technique called three sisters. And so what you would do, and what you said is correct. um, That's part of the whole system. So, you know, corn provides structure, right? With with the stalks. Uh, Then they would grow pole beans. So pole beans need something to climb. And so what are they climbing? They're climbing the corn. We talked about beans already. Beans add nitrogen to the soil. And what does squash need a lot of? It's a very leafy vegetable. It needs nitrogen. Um, And then squash provides a ground cover for all of those where it's protecting the soil. So it's it's a living mulch. It's the sun's not beating down, drying out the soil. And so the moisture is relatively high. So that three sisters combination, and there's, it's not just three. There's like, I believe Native Americans have hundreds of different sort of combos of these and planting diagrams and stuff. But um, yeah, it's a very powerful technique to do what you would have to do anyways, but you're just letting a plant do it for you. That's wonderful. And one of the things that you've referred to is using raised beds for growing. Mm -hmm. We've never used raised beds. So can you talk a little bit about that as a strategy instead of just planting in the ground? Yeah. So raised beds, I mean, let's say you live in an area that has really poor soil or you live in a, you know, townhouse with a concrete backyard. I mean, what's your option? You know, you don't really have one. And so what raised beds do, besides just making the garden more accessible, which for me, you know, I'm pretty tall. It's, I like working when I can stand if possible. But, you know, what raised beds do is they allow you to just build the soil you want uh, in the first place. Um, whether that's on top of the concrete, like you have to do it completely from scratch, or if you're connecting it to the soil below, but at least you know the stuff in the raised bed is good. That's the primary reason for it, I would say, uh, besides the fact that it's accessible. There are some other benefits like, you know, it being higher, it'll get hit by the sun earlier in the season. And so, you you know, it warms up a little quicker in the season. It cools down a little slower at the end of the year. There's things like that. But I would say the primary thing is just being able to control the experience a little bit more. Okay, fantastic. Well, Kevin, this has been super helpful. This has been such a wonderful starter course in basic gardening for anybody who's never done it before. And I'm so excited about it. And if people want to learn more about the basics of gardening and the kinds of things that you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah, we're just at Epic Gardening, at Epic Gardening, anywhere you want. I mean, Instagram, YouTube, really, it's it's Epic Gardening everywhere. If you want to get into more of the homesteading stuff, we have Epic Homesteading as well. But and I think for gardeners, you know, beginners, just start out with Epic Gardening and go from there. Fantastic. I know I've followed you on Instagram for... I don't even know how long this, at this point, a <laughs> year, awesome. a year and a half or so. And I love yeah. your videos and you're always out in the garden doing all kinds of stuff. I just saw one this morning where you guys were all eating some fresh carrots, which looked oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been such a great episode. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. 
I hope you found this episode helpful and that it's inspired you to try your hand at growing something fun this year for yourself, like fresh tomatoes or green onions. I've included the links to the resources from this show in the show notes, including how you can follow Kevin and see some of the great work that he's doing, plus some of his recommendations for seed companies with organic seeds available and the raised bed company that he loves. And remember, the only way to see the show notes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is if you follow the podcast. Alternatively, you can find them on my website as well at carefullyhealing.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget to come back next week when Kevin will be back on to talk about growing asparagus, artichokes, and celery. And I will tell you, he had a surprise for me on the celery front. So don't forget to tune in. And if you've been enjoying the Quest for Healing podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Kirsten. Before I started out on my health journey, I didn't know how poisonous many of the cleaners I used in my home were. Then when I started trying to clean the toxins out of my body, I started to question if the cleaners I was using were just adding back more. And how does that make sense when we're using toxic chemicals to get things clean? So imagine how excited I was when I found non-toxic, fragrance-free, essential oil-free Branch Basics cleaners. Now I use them for many things around my house, including scrubbing my kitchen and bathroom, cleaning my juicer, and as the laundry detergent for cleaning my clothes. Plus, it's also the soap that I use to wash my fruit because it's also sodium laurel sulfate free. So check out branchbasics.com. Their starter kits make it so easy to get started and you can use my code carefullyhealing, which is all one word, for 15% off your purchase. And because I always want to be upfront with you, this is an affiliate link, so I will earn a small commission if you buy using my code. But I only recommend this product because I love it and use it myself. So if you're ready to start cleaning your home with a healthier cleaner, go to branchbasics.com.